Hi, this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Ben here. Nice to have you along. Thanks for joining me. Episode 166 of my podcast, The Small Voice Conversations with Photographers, what you are currently listening to. Delighted to say my guest this week is the fantastic Anna Fox. And as usual, I will introduce Anna properly. After a few items of housekeeping, please stay tuned. Got a couple of things I wanted to tell you about. First of all, for the third and possibly final time for the time being, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the fantastic Flow Photographic, a small but internationally renowned fine art photographic print studio in central London specialising in printmaking, scanning, retouching and preparing photography for photo books. Flow has a global clientele comprised of galleries, photographers, artists and enthusiasts, all of whom are encouraged to drink coffee and fully discuss their requirements, working hand in hand with Flow founder and hugely experienced master printer Alex Schneiderman. This intimate communication between photographer and printmaker allows ideas about the work to fully develop. The unique combination of this super personal bespoke approach and state-of-the-art technology means that Alex can personally realise the full potential of every print. Recent clients include leading photographers such as Paddy Summerfield, Werner Bischoff, Chris Anderson, Matthew Finn and Sunil Gupta, as well as Magnum Photos, Stanley Barker Publishing and galleries, museums and art institutions all over the world. The lab is also home to Flow Photographic Gallery, a non-profit space that supports and showcases British documentary photography and a new exhibition, The Jungle Portraits by Is. Isabella Dedrichik. <laughs> Close enough. Examining the people and fashion from 1980s Tyneside is currently showing. So you, the small voice listener, provided you're a new customer, can currently get 20% off your first order by emailing info at flowphotographic.com with the answer to this question. Who said sharpness is a bourgeois concept? This is your last chance, folks, to get your 20% discount on your prints or anything else that you might need. Uh, the website is flowphotographic.com. And thank you to Alex for the last few weeks of sponsorship. Hope that you all go there and uh, use that lab if you possibly can. From my point of view, please remember that there is now an exclusive fortnightly members only episode of this podcast available on the alternate uh, alternate is the word I'm looking for Wednesdays in the month when there's no free main episode and you can sign up for that for £5 a month at pod.fan to access the special subscriber only content which includes the previous week's guest answering 20 bonus questions catch ups and check ins with former guests all the occasional specials from festivals, openings and events and more you can also show your support and help fund the ongoing production of the podcast by signing up as a supporter of the show for £3 a month or by making a larger periodic, occasional or one-off donation. And you can do all that, as I said, at pod.fan where you can easily, or at least reasonably easily, find this podcast page. My phone rang during that, so it was a bit 
chaotic in my head at least. I hope it sounded all right. Uh, if you need a new website, let me know. I'll build you one with Squarespace. It will be cheap. It will be brilliant. What more can I tell you? Don't waste your time. Just come to me. I'll do it for you. Smart people do that. And they all have brilliant websites as a result. Leave a positive review on iTunes. And that kind of concludes my messages. A couple of little mentions. First of all, um, I wanted to mention the Hot Shoe magazine have got a Chris Killip edition out currently, which they very kindly sent me. Thank you, Wendy. I enjoy it a great deal. I love Chris's work, as most of you will know. And Hot Shoe magazine, those of you who um, are au fait with it, you should know because it's been around for a long time and um, has always been a brilliant resource for us photographers and a wonderful publication. And I've um, been looking at it for I don't even know how many years, but it's nice to see this current Chris Killip issue. I wanted to let you know about that. Also, got to give congratulations to the lovely Alethea Casey for winning the Head-On Photo Award in the landscape category. And equally to Gideon Mendel, also formerly of this parish, for winning the portrait category. So a couple of kind of homegrown wins there. Um, for those of you conspiracy theorists thinking that is all a bit of nepotism i i was a judge on that award but not in the uh, landscape category i hasten to stress i was a judge in the portrait category which of course gideon won but i was one of many judges and it was um an interesting experience to uh, have done that for the first time I, I might sort of let you all know about it at some point but um congratulations to both of those lovely people Sad note, which most of you will already know, but of course, the very esteemed photojournalist Tom Stoddart died very recently. Um, I mentioned it on my social media, but for those of you who aren't aware, I thought I'd just mention it again now. Tom was extremely well regarded and much loved, and he will be greatly missed by those people who knew him and who he supported over the years because there are many people um, that he did. So it's episode 143, my chat with Tom, which is almost exactly a year ago. And uh, if you want to remind yourselves of that one, or if you haven't listened to it, you can find that in the archive. I also need to tell you that Charcoal Book Club has just opened the call for entries for the sixth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. 2022 speakers include Matt Black, Sabia Chimen, Jason Eskenazi, Mona Kun, Ram Fortune and Mimi Plum. Also featured reviewers include Katie Grannon, Todd Heido, Polymy Basu, High Museum of Art, Time Magazine, Milwaukee Art Museum, Deadbeat Club Press, Red Hook Editions, Yoffe Press, TIS Books and many more. And if you aren't familiar with it, the Chica Review is, of course, a juried photo book retreat taking place over six nights at the Chica Hot Springs Resort near Livingston, Montana. 64 photographers will be selected by a jury and invited to spend the week taking part in portfolio reviews, artist lectures and panel discussions, as well as communing over drinks in the saloon and in the hot springs and much more. At the conclusion of the event, one grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and have a book published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. Application deadline is December the 26th, 2021. So if you're interested, please apply now at Chico Review. Dot com C I H I C oh, I'll try that again C H I C O review dot com you'll find it. 
So all that now remains is the most important bit, which is that I need to introduce my guest this week, Anna Fox, born in 1961 and completing her degree in audiovisual studies at the Surrey Institute, Farnham, in 1986. Anna Fox began her career as a documentary photographer. Influenced by the British documentary tradition and the USA's New Colourists, she chronicled Newtown life in Basingstoke, locally known as Donut City, and went on to publish the monograph Workstations, 1988, a study of London office life in Thatcher's Britain. These works were exhibited extensively as far afield as Brazil and Estonia and in Through the Looking Glass at the Barbican Art Gallery in 1989, curated by David Meller and Ian Jeffrey, establishing Anna as a significant figure within the field of new colour documentary. In later projects made in the 1990s, In Pursuit, The Village, Friendly Fire and Zwartepiet, Anna created a new direction, inventing innovative approaches and raising questions regarding the problems of documentary practice. These projects were exhibited in a number of solo exhibitions, including the Photographer's Gallery in London and the Museum of Contemporary Photography, Chicago. By early 2000, Anna produced two autobiographical works, Cockroach Diary and My Mother's Cupboards and My Father's Words, which completely turned on its head the notion of the documentary photographer as outsider. These new works investigated the personal and difficult world of domestic households and relationships, bringing together a mix of image and text in two miniature bookworks. Later in 2003, the series made in Europe questioned further the power relation between subject and photographer by handing over power to the subject in work that portrayed a vision of contemporary Europe through the eyes and voices of teenagers. The project Country Girls and Pictures of Linda introduced a collaborative element to Anna's practice by working in partnership with the singer-songwriters Alison Goldfrapp and Linda Lunas. The relationship between subject and photographer was being explored from a new perspective. Anna was shortlisted for the 2010 Deutsche Börse Photography Prize and the 2012 Pilar Titelar Prize. Her later projects, Resort 1 and Resort 2, are published by Schilt Amsterdam. Loiseurs uh, is another book published by Diaphane. Diaphane, I think you pronounce that. And a new book, Blink, will be published by Central St. Martins. Anna is Professor of Photography at the University for the Creative Arts in Farnham and leads the Fast Forward Women in Photography Research Project. So there you go. That's quite a bio. And um, it was great to get Anna on. Finally, she is one of a cohort of British colour documentary photographers, which, of course, um, we've talked about before. And I'll talk about again at the beginning of our chat. But it's great for her to finally um, join the people um, who um, fall into that category have already been on the podcast. So please enjoy this chat I had with Anna Fox. Are you just doing this off your own back with no funding or anything to pay yourself? That's basically it. Yeah, well, I have been for six years. but um, It's incredible. I, yeah, I've, I have um, of late managed to get a little bit of, of income out of it. I, I now have or have had for the last year or two a couple of sponsors. Oh, um, so they will, they will advertise on the, sh- on the podcast. That brings in a little bit. And also now... I. I because I, I sent you those sort of so-called bonus questions, the reason I now do that is because I have a sort of second um, episode, which is for subscribers only. So I've got a small little cohort of members who pay me five quid a month to get additional bonus content. And that's why I now do those well, those nice. extra questions. Yeah, so it's a little bit of income. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I didn't start it's a bit it sad that. to think that. No, I'm sure you didn't. It's just... Um... I'm always fascinated by this question of of how people make their living because I I just think it's in there's something interesting about it. 
Well, well, very much so. You know, yeah, it's 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 incredibly. It's always been relevant um, for for you know creative people, especially. You've been a photographer for a very long time, and uh, I'm sure you've had lots of uh, experiences of that. Um, you know, the, the 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 business of trying to find a way to continue with your you know your work and also you know pay the mortgage so yeah it never it's always a question and i do i do like to talk about it sometimes with people maybe we'll talk about it later yeah i think it's an interesting question Mm, definitely well i mean i'm so glad to have you on to sort of set a bit of context are you recording already, I assume? I am, Oh, yeah, yeah I can see it. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, well, I won't well, interrupt like that. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. It's fine. I got it. I've sort of actually got into into the sort of inevitable habit now of, of asking people how they've been getting on the last year or two because of um, what we've all been through and, and, you know, what kind of impact it's had. Um, any sort of reflections on your on your past year or so? Uh, any any positives that have emerged for you out of out of the whole COVID experience? Um, yes, although I'm not sure that I really like to couch it in that kind of way. I think it's been the weirdest thing ever. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I know it sort of feels like it's over, but I know it's not. But I think there's a point now where we can reflect back. And I feel like we've been through a J.G. Ballard novel backwards. Uh, and... You know, what's also strange is it's, although we all carried on working in whatever way, it was a bit like semi-retiring in an odd way. I mean, I teach, I'm a university um, lecturer full time. And um, and so to begin with, I had an incredible sort of rush of energy, both in terms of think, rethinking what I do with my life and uh, revisiting projects and um, thinking about new ones and starting a few things. Uh, and essentially, um, I seem to have more time to myself, partly because I wasn't traveling and traveling takes up an awful lot of time. So, uh, you know, that was, it felt, that felt very positive. Um, and then uh, that was the first lockdown. The second lockdown, um, just wasn't the same. And, uh, and I've heard lots of people say this, I, that you know, I I felt like I lost enthusiasm for things. I mean, luckily, you know, again, when you reflect back, um, you know, I, I I feel I did I did achieve some things, um, even though the second part was was not so great for me personally. Um, but obviously, that's nothing compared to what's been mm. going on across the world, and I've. Incredibly lucky. I have a garden, and I live in the countryside, so I honestly can't imagine what it had. And and my children are grown up, so mm. I cannot imagine what it was like for parents or pe- anybody stuck in a flat. It must have been hideous. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose I'd count myself among those um, people, and and you know there were there were things about it that were okay, and and you get into a certain rhythm and a certain kind of groove, and you know, yes, you got you're sort of trying to do the homeschooling and all that sort of stuff but I don't know I think I think you're right I mean I I understand your sort of reluctance to think of it in terms of of positives but then again the sort of thing you just said is exactly the kind of thing I'm sort of looking for in a way is that it's that sort of uh you know looking for the for the silver lining kind of a thing and like you say you know I guess suddenly you didn't have to go to college anymore um you had 
you know, suddenly we all had this sort of this kind of moment to sort of press the pause button. And I suppose, you know, why, why not try and try and find the, the you know the good things to, to to be drawn from it? What were you kind of getting on with? Were you were you sort of revisiting the archive to some extent, or are there certain projects that that you're able to sort of work on? Obviously, not in the shooting phase of things, but uh, you know, perhaps afterwards or editing or anything like that. So I've got quite a lot of projects that it's really, this is really interesting. I've got quite a lot of bodies of work that have not been out much. They might've been out in one exhibition or a little bit of the work has, uh, or it hasn't been published as a book or what have you. So in the archive, there are bodies of work that I could look at and think about how they might be put together for a publication, for example. And definitely one of those you know, one of those is, is leading up to one, um, which is great. It's the series Country Girls that I made in collaboration with Alison Goldfrapp um, between 1996 and 2006, something like that, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I did actually also publish a second edition of My Mother's Cupboards and My Father's Words during lockdown with Here Press. Um, and, and that was fairly straightforward and, and interesting to, to redo in a very slightly different way. Mm. Um, but and I did I did shoot some pictures as well because I I have been making a series of photographs of um, flowers um, which started on on a project called A Moon and a Smile uh, which was a commission for eight women artists in Wales from the Glen Vivian Gallery we were responding to the the re-attribution of the Dilwyn archive from just being John Dilwyn to John and Mary Dilwyn and uh, I started from that archive, I saw some great images uh, of flowers where they dropped a kind of backdrop, like a sack or something or some some linen or muslin or something behind it. So almost making an artificial studio in the garden. And I did a few while I was on that commission. And so I did uh, I did more. I, I, I watched the things as they started to emerge in my garden. Uh, so also that first lockdown was spring was coming into springtime. So there was yeah. that optimism around the weather and the flowers coming out and everything, and uh, and that was really nice to 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 make that make a bit of that work. And the other thing I did, I can't remember if this was. I think this was the second lockdown actually, because I was really I felt really panicky about not making work at all, hmm. and I started taking screenshots from the TV reportage um, of what was happening. And it was it was really interesting because there was a particular kind of reportage, which was quite alarming, which, I mean, I, I assume was, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't real, but it was especially came on at a certain time during the pandemic in order to really frighten people, to, to make us do what we were supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. And I've worked on that with... Um, um, a, a, a filter to create something that like I've never done before actually to be honest you know worked mm. in post-production filters um, so I've got I've got this series of sort of COVID survivor portraits mm. um, or sort of hospital workers portraits not quite sure wh- which way it's going but it was great I was sitting at the screen watching the news which I couldn't stop watching as many people couldn't and then just taking screenshots when I Mm-mm. When I knew. And I didn't realise the news isn't that you can't get the news on on replay for very long. So it, I had to do it there and then, because if you miss it, mm. it's not available. Um, 
Right. I don't think it's available. Like two days later, it's not available anymore, which I didn't know. You know, no. I, I had no idea of that. Yeah, you can't c- catch it again on iPlayer or something, although you can with everything else. But the news. So it sounds like your creative juices were, were flowing then. That's. I mean, are you, do you find it relatively easy in that respect? Are you, are you sort of bristling with ideas and, 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 you know, constantly kind of got things that come up or, or do you have to sort of make a, a sort of conscious effort in a way? Um, I mostly got lots, far too many ideas that I'm never going to, never going to finish in my lifetime. But that only happened to me after I got over what I call the first phase of my career. Um, and most people will have the experience when you're at uh, college or university that you, um, even in the days when I was at university in the 80s, where you work on projects, either term by term, or if you're lucky enough to have a very open course, it could be year by year, but usually only in the last year. And uh, certainly when I first left um, college, the first couple of years, I was working the same way, or I called year by year project or project by project. And May, I can't. I don't actually remember exactly remember when it changed, um, but I think it it might have been when somebody started. I think it was Val Williams, who I've worked with quite a lot, was looking through my archive for a particular project she was involved in, and she was picking out things from the archive, you know, saying, you know, this is interesting and this is interesting, uh, and I started realizing that I've got an awful lot of work in my archive mm. that I've never used for for a, a so called project. And that I'm always taking photographs and that that's what I should be doing. And I that I should have lots of things going on, even if they're just a photographer taking a photo. You know, this morning I photographed the most amazing red sky that was out there, mm-hmm. even if it's just something like that. Or, or, or I can't think of another example. But most of the time it's not. It's more, you know, things I picked up on that are interesting and I start photographing in some way. And inevitably, you know, maybe... 20% of them will turn into something um, mm. and the rest just become material for thinking on. So since releasing myself from what I call the project mentality, right, um, right. I've found loads of ideas. But but when I, when I was just working project by project, I had the most horrible panic at the end of a body of work. It's like, what am I going to do now? Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes I think I picked up things that – weren't worthwhile following up because i was mm. panicking mm-hmm. i see yeah 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 because you feel like you're going to sink to the bottom of the um, of the ocean in, in a sort of creative sense as, as i heard someone uh, uh describe that that feeling yeah so it's like you know what on earth are you going to do next whereas if you're constantly doing things and i i, I do bits of writing and other things and i do other things as creative things you know, which some sometimes sound a bit ludicrous, but but um, yeah, and, and I think I, I think if you keep that creative energy going, um, yeah, absolutely, it's sort of um, you, know, you know, it's self perpetuating in a way. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. And who cares what fails? Right, right. You know, it doesn't doesn't really matter. Absolutely, I think it's twenty percent is a pretty good conversion rate. That sounds to me. Yeah. Uh, if it, yeah, might be less, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to sort of set a bit of context, I think, especially for the maybe for some of the younger listeners, in terms of who you know, you and your place in in the sort of history of of recent British photography, you're you're a sort of in- integral member of a of a sort of certain cohort of of photographers here in the UK, uh, the so called second wave of 
British colour, I suppose, documentary photographers, they, they call it. Now, who can we include within this group? Um, I think Paul Rees, who I spoke to very recently. Paul's yeah. going to be on, I think, the one before yours. So the listeners won't have heard that yet, but well, they will have heard it by the time they hear this, if you didn't see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, who else do you, do you put in that group yourself? Well, Paul Seawright. Mm-hmm. Um, Anthony Hockey was a bit after. I mean, he was a student when I was teaching, but then I was teaching pretty fast after graduating. Mm. Um, I, I'd like to put Tessa Bunny in there. You right. see, the thing is, there were people who weren't really, who weren't necessarily talked about within it, within that group that should have been in yeah. that group. Yeah, interesting. Um, That's why I asked you, yeah. And, you know, Circa Lisa Continent uh, probably should have been in the first wave, but I don't think she started making colour till a bit later. Mm. Um, but some of these people, well, like Tessa, for example, who's amazing, fantastic work. Yeah, um, I know Tessa. It's funny because I, I was going to say, you know, you, you seem to be like, I couldn't, are there any, I was thinking before I started talking to you, you know, I wonder if there are any other women in in that group because, you know, we, we you know, you, yours yours is the, the first name, but then I think beyond that, I'm not sure. Not that I'm any kind of an expert, that's why no, I was but asking that's, you. That's what's interesting. I mean, David Moore actually was another person yeah. in that group, but yeah, David. The, the ones that were spoken about the most were mostly guys and the same in the first wave. But actually, mm. when you look at it, there were other women that should have been in both of those waves, if you mm-hmm. like. And um, I, I, I think um, I don't really often complain about not being in this and not being in that. But there was a show at um, MoMA, New York. Was it called The Thatcher Years? And I think that would have been a great moment to have had some women in that show. Mm, it yeah, was absolutely. all five guys. Um, wow, really? Yeah. Oh, man. And uh, undoubtedly, there could have been some women in that show. Mm. So that's stuff still happening, despite the hope that people are more uh, aware of of that, um, you know, happening or that the the, the danger of that happening. But sort of Martin Parr and Paul Graham, they they were, I suppose, the first wave and they were both people who taught you at Farnham. Yes, and the yeah. other key influence teaching me at Farnham was Karen Norm, Karen, right. although she wasn't there as much as them, but her work, you know, when I look in my talk that I do, I have a slide with one of each of their works in, mm. and you can see the absolute growth of my work out of this blending of their three. That's really interesting. So Karen in particular, her use of text and image and the sort of um, uh, the s- s- satire that she was playing with in that combination. And and what so the other two? What what were the main influences of Parr and Graham then? If Karen was like you say the text and the satire, I mean also with Karen. Uh, I mean there's an incredible she she's pays incredible de- detail to the craft of photography and printing, and I found that very inspiring. Mm. Uh, Martin Parr. It was. Um, uh, as students, we went on a field trip to his house, which would never be allowed now. <laughs> but, uh, um, and we saw the first prints from Last Resort. And I st- can still remember the feeling of seeing those. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. extraordinary. So, you know, I think his use of the camera and flash were incredible and also humour. Um, and humour, I, I, um, I was always interested in comedy. Um and my family were very interested in comedy, so I grew up with a lot of it around. And um, so seeing Martin's work really, you know, tapped into that. And Karen's as well, you know, satirical humour. Mm. With Paul Graham, 
I found a much more melancholic uh, eye, a much more poetic eye, if you like, and in a way, a, a more intellectual sense to his work that I also found really interesting, the sort of background behind it, um, was deeply um, political. And um, I learned quite a lot about Paul because Paul uh, offered me a place in his, uh, uh, sharing his darkroom when I left university. And I would never have survived as a photographer, actually, if he hadn't done that. Mm. Um, and in sharing a darkroom with him, I, you know, I saw all the books he was reading and all the, um, all the contact sheets that came out. It was absolutely fascinating. It's the sort of thing that you would never normally see. And, I, you know, you, photographers don't show this sort of thing much in their talks because they just want, want to talk about the good pictures, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. which is totally understandable. It's amazing to to think that he's you know w w always has um, done his own color printing and that's always been an important part of the process to him. It's, you know. Yes, and I have too, predominantly, except um, what for a period of time where I didn't have access. Once uh, his darkroom uh, got dismantled because he moved to the states. In fact, it was probably dismantled before that, and it was a while um, before I was printing again. I mean, I now only digital printing at, at home. So anything else has to be sent to a lab. Yeah. But I mean, this categorization that we're talking about is not just about the color. It's about the content as well, you know, to some extent. And it's really about this um, fascination with, with, the, with the everyday, with the mundane. And that's some, something that you're very much, you know, part of that tradition. Yeah, I forgot to mention that as well. That was a huge revelation to me when I went to, uh, to college. I mean, it... Um, before I before I went, uh, my exposure to photography was um, all through my father's book collection. He was a very keen amateur uh, documentary photographer, uh, quite good. And he had a, a, a nice library of books. Uh, he was a big fan of French photography, Cartier-Bresson, Ager and Brassai. But also he had books by Friedlander and Diane Arbus, Tony Ray Jones, probably, I think, mm -hmm. yeah, Tony Ray Jones. Um and, you know, lots of lots of others. And so, you know, I had a sort of idea about photography uh, and I knew I knew that I really loved it. Uh, I knew I loved the idea of photographing well, secret moments like Brassai's Paris at night or decisive moments like Bresson's. Um, but what I hadn't really thought about was this thing about the everyday. Uh, and that one doesn't have to go off to miles away from home or dangerous places or newsworthy yeah. subject matter you, your your subject matter c can be on your doorstep mm. and and that evolved for me uh, uh, over, over a period of years you know so so yeah the everyday was absolutely sort of mind-boggling that it could be so fascinating and of course it is and it, of course the other thing it does that is if you focus on the everyday and things that are around you um, especially in places that don't get photographed very much because they're considered so ordinary or dull, you're finding out so much more about the society you live in mm -hmm. than if you're fo just photographing newsworthy things. Yeah. Well, just to sort of quote um, Paul himself, he, he he did the podcast, bless him, and uh, he said this during our talk. He said, there is power to the everyday and an insight can be gained through gently looking at it and I, I liked that and I thought that's that really sums it up but I suppose you know f there's always been the photographing of the everyday since photography was invented but I suppose it was that combination of the using of the color 
with in combination with the everyday that was the kind of that was what was new about it that was what was you know uh, something fresh i guess yeah i think i sort of diverted from that as i went along a bit but it's something that always interests me yeah taking that to its ultimate kind of conclusion is really to do what you eventually ended up doing um quite extensively was to really focus in um on a very sort of autobiographical diaristic kind of stuff and and you know really shooting within your own living room practically or certainly within your own home you you did quite a lot of work in that in that area or you know using that as a kind of starting point yeah and i think that happened for two reasons one because um of the sort of general mood in the photography world where there was a lot of um there was a lot of discussion about ethics, I suppose, a very sort of early discussions on how people should be should and shouldn't be photographed. And everyone got a bit nervous about photographing people. Mm. And you see that in the trajectory of um, Martin Parr's work as well. Mm. Uh, but on top of that, I had two small children. And uh, so it was harder to to get out and get and, and do a, a like a... Well, I mean... Certain things weren't uh, so hard, but, you know, it was harder to get out and do big projects. So it was a good time to focus on on things at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did this thing, uh, Hewitt Road in London, here, not not far from where I am right now. Oh, on, where are you? On, I'm in Stoke Newington. Right. But um, that was on the ladder, right, in, uh, in Haringey, I think it is. Um, yeah. Not that um, my listeners in... Uh, Kansas City will know where that is, but it's, it's nice to sort of uh, give it a name. But um, but yeah, that was you was I think you were still sharing a house with other people at that point. Um, although you were a few years, you know, out of college. Yeah, I mean, I I think I I'm not sure if I've ever had a house to myself, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, I was well, sharing houses for quite some time. But 41 Re- Hewitt Road was a big shared house, and it's where a lot of the domestic photography that I was doing happened so cockroach diary happened there as well Mm -mm. um actually the book 41 hewitt road didn't come out for a good 10 years after i moved from there oh right okay Um, yeah and again it was like looking at the archive um and again it was val williams looking at the archive and and saying aren't these images interesting and then me looking back at it and thinking yeah there's more of those and and uh she also helped with the text idea for that book Mm. uh, which was great what would tell me about the text in that and what was the idea behind that? Well, you know, I work with text and image quite a lot. I, I do like doing it because I like, I'm interested in the, if you like, the extra perspective it gives or the way you can inject a particular kind of humour or satire into work through the text. Uh, I'm not interested in explaining the work with the text. Mm. And it's like opening up, let's say opening up to other meanings. And... Um, um I was again as I said I was talking to Val about this project and um she just said to me why don't you email everyone who's been there and ask them to tell you something about their experience so I did it and these are all they're basically scans of all the emails that I got back yeah yeah And, and then there uh a designer put the book together um and sort of decided where what goes where um, which was nice because I, again, sometimes I c- kind of quite like that idea. I don't always um, 
Well, I never now come to a project with a fixed idea when I go to a designer for a book because uh, the art of the designer is totally amazing and I really appreciate seeing what they do with something. Uh, Obviously, one can make changes afterwards, but sometimes it just works, whatever they do. Um, And also in the Hewitt Road uh, project, there's a series of objects that I found um, like eight years after I uh, moved you know, you keep various boxes in the attic. So I was doing, trying, attempting to clear the attic and a couple of boxes cropped up saying 41 Hewitt Road and I opened them. They were full of the most ludicrous things. I mean, I honestly had no idea. It, it, again, it was a real eye-opener in terms of thinking about time and what was valuable to one once and whether it would be valuable to you today. Mm. And... There were lots of very humble things in there, which I just found very endearing. So this I photographed them. This was stuff that you'd kept? Yes, in these boxes wrapped up. But you didn't even really remember why particularly. I guess at the time you might have yeah, no, might have I had was some sentimental. I was shocked to find these things. I was thinking, God. And it, it, it's there's something slightly sad about them as well, because mm. well, they're, yeah. rather, they're rather pathetic. Well, there is a sort of melancholy to anything to do with, you know, that kind of nostalgia for some time gone by. And these, these objects have a sort of, um, I guess they have a resonance in that way. You know, they remind you of these things, yeah, or these was, times. It was the act of saving them on top of this that was so odd. So when, so when actually the, the pictures don't come out so well in the book of these objects, but when I put it together as a piece, when it's, when it's exhibited, um, not that it's been exhibited very often, but the objects come at the end and they've got a title. It's um, uh, objects from the four, from the 41 Hewitt Road archive in brackets currently in storage. So I wrap them back up and put them back into storage. And right. it, it's little things like that that are kind of important to me. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, um, you know, I, I, I could have thrown them all away because they were so ridiculous. But then I couldn't because they were so they were impossible to throw away. And and that's just really interesting. Yeah. I mean I, I really didn't like living in Hewitt Road very much. Mm. Um uh, I can imagine. I can imagine you're a bit I mean at that point you probably like you say, you're a bit over there comes a point when you just don't want to do that anymore, right? Yes, and it was uh, too fraught with difficulties and too many people and and what have you. Um, but interestingly, the book redeems the place. And what, did, were you child free at that point, or did you did you had you had a baby? By yeah, then? I had two small children. You, you there. had two, yeah, yeah. And I I even read that you lived in a van for a while. Is that true? I did. Oh God. It, I, I, couple of times not for huge amounts of time and mm. um, once uh I, I think when i was pregnant we went round uh we went, we went on this amazing road trip in a van for four months wow. around the whole of europe just to get away from everything mm. and every, everyone um and then another time when i was doing a commission in sheffield uh i was between living in a van and a house but you know uh, and also, we lived in squats mm. uh, in London because I mean, be- before Forty One Hewitt Road, but um, that's you know that's what you that's what you did. Yeah, yeah. that's what well, we did. It goes back to our original sort of uh, exchange about um, you know the, the challenges of 
of making it ha- making it work and and uh, you know the the financial difficulties that we're all in in terms of uh, trying to you know find a way to earn money and um, do do the creative work as well. But then you you left London and I think you went back to the countryside, didn't you? Yes, I alternated between them a couple of times. Mm. So and I you think, went and worked um, in the village. Uh, I came back to live in in a village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and I'd already made one project about my grandmother's village. That was called The Village in 19, uh, 1991, I think, around 1991, uh, which was a, an installation piece with sound and image, which was almost impossible to ever exhibit at the time because photography galleries didn't do things like that. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and um, then when I came back um, to where I'm living now, I started photographing this village and uh, several others around. It's, it's very close to where I grew up. And... Um, uh, you know, still with the same sentiment in that um, I'm trying to look behind the scenes at village life. So so that's the other thing that interests me, as well as the everyday. What lies behind the scenes of popular representations? So the, the village village life is represented in a very particular way, a particularly southern village life. Um, you know, chocolate box, postcard type things. Um and actually, it's obviously a very, very different thing to that. Mm. Um, and interestingly, there are three um, great writers who who live, who lived, sorry, lived, lived around this area. One was Jane Austen. Uh, another was um, Gilbert White. Mm. And another was William Cobbett. And... Um, uh, what's his name? Raymond Williams writes about them in the country and the city. He, he calls it the rural triangle, uh-huh, and okay. they're quite interesting. They're different dates, but they're quite interesting people to be suspended in between. Which is how I see myself, um, because they, in different measures, they reveal things about the countryside that mm. other people haven't in very interesting ways, Mm-mm. and that's what I'm interested in. So I decided to, but well, because I live here, it was was is my village as well i had to sort of approach things in a slightly different way um and i just started photographing all the kind of masked uh events mm. well, not just masked like performed events shall we say like the village plays and halloween and uh pram races and nativities and all this sort of stuff and it, it the eye and a lot of them are quite eerie Mm. Uh, or the best yeah. ones are quite eerie. Let's I'm say. glad. I'm glad you said that because that's that's my impression. Is that there's a sort of creepiness to it um, that's um, fascinating, and um, yeah, I guess masks definitely have that aspect to them. Um, and yeah, the the one of the two uh, fun runners, I guess they are women in in their uh, t-shirts, and they've got masks on but there's there's something quite menacing about those images a kind of stepford wives type of a vibe i suppose you might say yeah or um it's got all sorts of things embedded the shinings another mm. thing that's like or gothic fairy tales mm. gothic uh, is the word yeah yeah stuff like that interesting um, which are all yeah. things that interest me um or that have interest that have engaged me at some point or other and um and do those things just emerge from the process of doing it, though, or, or are you sort of setting out initially to sort of convey some of that stuff? Or is it a kind of no, it mixture? emerges, really, I, I would say. You know, I mean, so the, the works I've made vary in the sense that some have been commissioned 
and some are just things I start doing myself. So the first village project was commissioned, but I went to my grandmother's village to do it, to do the work. And so it was a very personal commission, let's say. Um, other commissions like workstations, for example. Um, I mean, it was personal in the sense that I knew a lot about offices, but it was a it was a, a, a less personal. But if something emerges out of a real personal interest um, and I'm just doing it because I want to do it, then yes, it's come from lots of places, but the th I definitely don't plan anything. Mm -hmm. and, and this is actually quite difficult when you're teaching a university because what we ask students to do is probably too much of the time is to plan their projects, especially at undergraduate level. And as I said, if you're doing a commission, you have to do that. And perhaps if you're learning, you have to do that. But once you're out in the world, you sort of have to undo that, I think, because... You know, otherwise, I feel like the work would always be very formulaic. There wouldn't be any surprises. But mm. it's just this—it's this discovery of the personal voice, I suppose, and the the personal stories uh, uh, that you that you want to tell, but you can't articulate them. I mean, that's why one goes in, one becomes a photographer or a filmmaker. You know, I, I mean, I love literature, but I, you know, I'm not good enough to write literature. I, you know, I could try, I suppose, but I just can't imagine how to start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably a bit too old or something. But, um, uh, you, you know, you, you use photography because you can't speak it. That's what you're, you're, you know, you're, you're saying something with it. And even, even sometimes when it's made, Im immediately made, you, you can't uh, see the things that are emerging in it. I mean, I was astounded when I asked um, Mika Bal to write about my project Schwarte Piet, which was shot in the Netherlands, the Black Peter story. And she started look. she started, she wrote about it in my book. She also wrote about it in several of her books. And she kept referring to various paintings in relation, historical paintings. Uh, and I've just thought, well, I looked at my pictures and I look at the paintings and I thought, she's exactly right. This is what they come out of. But there was no way that was a plan. But it was in my, you know, I did our A-levels. So these things were in my history. And obviously they're in mm. our culture as well. I probably visited museums or at some point with some of these things in them and they have impact on you. And, and, and there they are. Those things are sort of sitting in your subconscious somewhere, maybe just uh, and that's kind of I suppose when, you know, the creative process is partly about tapping into that, that part of your brain. So it kind of it makes a certain kind of sense. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that project. Can you just explain for, for people who don't know what it was and how it came about? What Schwarte Pete? Yes. OK, so, I mean, I made that before I made Back to the Village. So it was also about masking and you know, I discovered through that project that masking and, and carnival are absolutely fascinating as well. Um, you love that sort of theatricality. There's something about that that's I central. do. And there's also this um, descendancy into a, a level of chaos uh, and a loss of identity where you can become something completely different, um, which are just absolutely fascinating in, in relation to how controlled society is, let's say. So so when I, my, my brother lives in the Netherlands and uh, the first time I visited him was around the middle of November and I looked out of his window and saw all these blacked up people dancing on the road. I was just like, oh my God, what's going on? And he told me the story and I thought, well, that's definitely a 
photo project because mm-hmm. I just hadn't hadn't heard it at all. I did, just didn't know. That's how the Dutch and and I think some places in Belgium, maybe even in Germany, um, celebrate Christmas. The old fashioned Christmas story, which is Saint Nicholas or Sinterklaas in the Netherlands arriving in every Dutch city in the middle of November uh, on boats, of course, and he or he's a very old white man in. Uh, with a long beard and white robes like a bishop religious looking like looking like character and he's accompanied by hundreds of black peters which originally were predominantly women white women i say predominantly white women blacked up as black men Mm -hmm. and so i just like god this is a sort of double um shock if you like (laughs) the blacking up and then the women turning into men and um and this character that, that they're representing is a sort of helper assistant to santa claus essentially to saint nicholas to yeah. saint nicholas yeah um, who is santa claus right well he's the predecessor right of, right of, i mean coca-cola invented father christmas and stuck him on right. jesus's birthday right apparently which i also found I, fascinating i did not know that but well, yeah i, I didn't know it. until i started this project but yes father christmas came apparently came from coca-cola now there are there are um anomalies to that apparently they have green santas in somewhere in eastern europe so i don't know how that fits but anyway um so this is the proper old-fashioned version saint nicholas is the patron saint of children and that's when he comes in the middle of November. He arrives in the middle of November and then he leaves uh, sweets and cookies on the 5th of December. So it's nowhere near the 24th of December. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, so so the Black Peach, Fata Peak, comes from when uh, the Spanish occupied uh, the Netherlands and all the, what they called the lowlands, I think Belgium as well, in either the 16 or 1700s. I, I think it's the... I think it's the 1700s. Forgive me, I can't quite remember dates. No, that's like that. okay. Um, and they just continued, you know, when the, they had they had North African servants and slaves, and so they had, were the the pers- the people that, that that were working for Saint Nicholas, and they just continued celebrating it, and of course, to people who've come from places where we're told we shouldn't do that anymore, it's a bit of a shock when you see it. Mm. And it has caused lots of problems in the Netherlands. And um, uh, in the 60s, they did try and change it because that was obviously a particular time. And uh, more recently, uh, in the last few years, they've been trying to change it. But it's absolutely fascinating, this change. And I've been photographing it again because when you black the face of a of a woman and put this, the curly wig on, y- you really can't tell who they are. You You can't tell them. So... Even if all the school teachers from the school were do, were blacked up, the the children couldn't tell who they were. Sure, of course, yeah. And it seems particularly pertinent to black. So, like oh, the other colours didn't work so well. Anyway, I'm not sure. Oh yeah, was. because they were there was a suggestion that maybe if they just you know use you know green or blue or something that would uh, sort of somehow how please everyone in some way would be a compromise. Yeah, but it's not so realistic so it doesn't work no, of course, in the same yeah, way yeah. so 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 then now so now that that because that didn't work in the 60s they then went back to blacking up and then recently what they've started doing is smudging the faces 
And of course, the faces are revealed. You've got smudges so you can see the person. So and they've changed, they've started to change the background story. So instead of these um, North African lookalikes being uh, servants and slaves of the Spanish, they're now saying that they are smudged faces because they've come down the chimney. So, okay, so supposedly they're doing the so-called right thing by smudging the faces. And there's a lot of aggression around this as well. It's quite scary if you go to one of the, one of the days, because, you know, there's people, there's a lot of police, uh, plainclothes policemen in the crowds. Mm. Um, so, so in so-called doing the right thing, they they're changing the story to the wrong thing, and it's it's just a really strange mixing up of, of histories. So I'm photographing it again, um, and of course I haven't been for the last two years. Um, I kind of wanted to do it one more time. Mm. But um, maybe I can't. Maybe I've got it. I've probably got enough. And I, I need somebody to write about this thing I'm talking about. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, to write well about it. Because it's, it's, politically, it's really important what's happened. Yeah, and it's so opposite to, to some of the things that are, you know, kind of big kind of hot topics uh, of, of, our, of our day. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it, because even when you did it, you had a problem when you had your first, the first show of, of that work, uh, the first solo show of that work, and there was a sort of squeamishness or a, or a kind of a nervousness among the people who were supposed to be putting that show on. Didn't, didn't they take it, uh, take it down or put it somewhere out of sight? It was totally, totally fascinating to women curators from Chicago um, Museum of Photography um, selected it to exhibit alongside, I'm trying to remember, an African photographer. I think it could have been Seydou Keita. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was, a, there was something like three exhibitions. They have quite a big building. And mine was downstairs on the ground floor. And when the board of directors saw it hung up, and uh, apparently, and I was told this, that they were all um, older white men, they panicked um, and uh, got it taken down. And then the two women curators um, argued for it to be put back up, but they only got it put back up in a sort of boardroom upstairs. So they opened this, I think it was third floor. They opened this third floor uh, to the public as my exhibition. And actually it worked really well up there with a big long table in the middle with these characters all around the edge. But I mean, importantly for me, there are problems with this work and one has to be really careful what you do with it. I mean, the first thing I did before I made the publication was to um, go and talk to Mark Celia autograph um, and see what he thought of the work. And he thought it was fantastic. He'd also seen uh, this tradition when he was at a photo festival in uh, Rotterdam, I think, and was really shocked by it. And he thought the photographs were very powerful and he bought a set for the autograph archive which allowed me the money to print the work for the first show and then uh, so autograph were behind it which was really important actually and then um, the context is really important so every time it's it's exhibited uh, at least uh, an introduction has to be up it it's I, I if I can get the whole text up that Mika Bell's written that's really useful because mm. she talks about the whole background to it and also how she all the women in her village, just young girls, just wanted to be Shvata Peets. It was their dream, uh, which is really interesting. And um, uh, and then there are certain things that I won't do with the work. So a couple of years ago, when the 
trouble sort of came up again against Shrata Pete. Somebody asked me to have a pop-up show in Amsterdam with the work and I just said it's not the right context, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of the time it was happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a, and, all, and a, um, very close to that, a theatre company were doing a, got sort of uh, a one-man show, one-person show, psychologically unpacking Shrata Pete. And I did let them use an image for their poster because it worked with the, they, they provided context. the context. Yeah that it needed so it it has to be it has to be carefully handled the work Mm. obviously i mean it seems it's interesting that you know there seems to be a sort of confusion and i don't know how you feel about this but in terms of like let's talk about the 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 reaction that you had in chicago um you know just because you're photographing something doesn't mean you're you're somehow endorsing it i mean as a as a documentary photographer fundamentally you're there to show you know aspects of the society we live in and you know this is something that you just got interested in so what yeah what are your feelings about that okay that's another really important point and it leads me to there are a few stories connected to this project when i first showed it to a publisher the the the, it was it's only 18 portraits they said to me okay this is a great start can you go back and document some of the background you know him arriving and the boat santa claus santa claus and all the rest of it um and I was really happy because they were interested and it was quite a big publisher. And as I was walking away down the street, I was just thinking about this and it was beginning to fill me with horror. And it's like, I can't do this because I don't want to do this. Mm. Um, and at, at that time, I was thinking the pictures just won't be any good. But what it would have done is spoil the project because this idea. OK, so a lot of photography projects do have opinions and some of mine have opinions attached to them that you can feel maybe through the text and image combination to some extent, not a, not a huge extent, but to some extent. Um, but this was really important that it didn't I wasn't making a judgment um, because this is what makes it horrifying to look at, because especially if you're in a room and they're all surrounding you, they're quite big, they're all looking at you and it's like, crikey, you know, and you really, um, the shock is felt by the fact that they're, they're not judgmental portraits. Mm. They're, right. I mean, and it's this feeling that they had to be photographed in this grand way to say, this is it, we are here, this is what's happening. I mean, some of the more, the recent ones that I've taken, they started off in that same way and then they've evolved into uh, quite different things. Um, As I was going to ask you, before I knew that you were continuing that project, I was going to ask you about, you know, what would happen if you tried to do that work now? Because that level of um, discomfort and perhaps confusion in some respects, uh, you know, has has been magnified in uh, of late and and has increased, I would would argue. So what are your feelings about um, showing it Again, as it were, or well, I'm, I, as I said, I've got to have. I, I think I've got the pictures I want now, and it, it's now there's three sequences. There's Shrata Pete, the original. Then there's smudged Shrata Pete, and then I've also got a series of un, semi undressed Shrata Pete. So they're half black and half white. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be the right time, and I have to have the right piece of writing to give the next bit the right context. Uh, it, 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 the context is everything. And I, I again, I have had a, a curator call me from the Netherlands wanting to uh, do a show of it. And when she talked about the various gallery spaces, I, there was only one that suited the work. Uh, I think I can't remember what it was. It's a history type museum. Um, 
and anyway she hasn't got back to me but I was really fussy about and I wouldn't do that normally um or not to such an extent but if it goes wrong if it's done the wrong way it's a disaster yeah yeah so you you just have to you just have to do that but having said that shooting there I I've actually felt um that it's quite dangerous now and I you know I I every time I've been recently I've thought something is going to happen Right. Um, and I mean, obviously, like I said, you know, you can you can spot plainclothes policemen, and you can you can see what they're they're nervous. They're really nervous. Uh, one place I went, they were arresting people um, uh, around in the street who they mm. felt were a threat. Mm. Interesting. Mm. So the sort of battle lines have been drawn there, sort of in a way that you've got this. Uh, yeah, I guess people who are trying to uphold that tradition and, and, and then the people who see it as utterly unacceptable and, yeah, well, you know, how does well, that I mean, ever... I don't know. I, I'm, I'm always assisted by a Dutch photographer when I go uh, and do it. And I haven't actually spoken to him for about 12 months. So I must say, I'm, I don't know what's happened during lockdown. I mm. d- just don't know. Mm. I guess we'll... Yeah, well, I'd be, I'd be, I look forward to yeah, seeing, you know, how that, that all uh, one, unfolds. One day. Yeah, yeah, one day. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, my mother's cupboards and my father's words. That was something that you you did, and um, as you say, you, you mentioned it a bit earlier because you redid the original publication with Hair Press quite recently. I heard you say somewhere that it was a completely unethical project, in a way, and I wanted you to sort of expand on that a little bit. I said it's a wicked project. Wicked. Oh God, my hair. Oh, is oh down. sorry. Right. Um, no. Yeah, I think you said. I think you you referred to it as unethical as did well. Did I? Or something. Okay. Yeah. But you know, I guess you were talking about the fact that it was very personal and it was very revealing of your of your parents, or certainly well, of your. I suppose if I, if I said unethical, I was meaning that I spied on them. Exactly. Yeah. You, I didn't yeah, tell you, them I was doing it. Right. Was, you didn't tell me you were doing it. Yeah. No. Yeah. And and your dad your dads were you know the the. The words that he was using, the language that he was using was quite uncompromising to say the least. I think that's probably a polite way of putting it. But um, I don't know, was he was he always like that or was that a, a function of the fact that he was, you know, maybe he was getting old or something, you know, that he was... Become... Uh, he was always like that, but uh, he, he got ill um, in the later part of his life and there were frustrations around that right, that made right. it life more frustrating for him, but he was... You know, he was always like that, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. But um, yeah, he was. <laughs> I mean, I could tell a good story about my father, but I probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> and but in, in a sort of in contrast, it, it was an interesting choice to f- photograph your mum's neat cupboards. What was your thinking behind that decision? Again, okay. So in doing it, I just remember doing it, right? But in retrospect. I was thinking that there was another kind of aggression to the neatness of the cupboards. Um, There was also a claustrophobia, sense of claustrophobia, um, which is something quite a few of my family have suffered from claustrophobia. Um, There was a sense of having to be the, the very small things becoming important. Um, Maybe there was a sense of control in it for her as well. To, yes, you know. yes, yes. Yeah, it's actually hard to, you know, again, it, when I talk about that project, it, it literally talks for it, speaks for itself. 
luckily. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. very hard to say much more about it because absolutely. Um, I mean, it is quite funny as well. Mm. It, it is, it, yeah. There is a dark kind of, humor to it. it. There is a real dark humor to it, and um, mm. I quite like that. Um, interestingly, the remake of it, and um, I I went to meet um, Here Press because I love the design of their books. And Ben Weaver does the design and production and everything. And um, he uh, sort of slowly over a period of time persuaded me to do it slightly different. My original thought, I want it to be exactly the same. And, you know, I'm so glad he did that because uh, because the small differences that occur are actually really important. So, it, well, one thing is it's printed much. It's much better quality printing, which mm. is means you can see the images more clearly. Um, so it's it's refined in that sense. It's very slightly bigger than it was. And the text is not such heavy script and it's a little bit bigger. And there are two blue pages, one front and one back. So all those little elements make it a little easier to read and get into and see. Hmm. And I found that interesting because both my parents have since died. I mean, before that was second edition was published. And it's almost like because they've gone, it can like, it can get bigger, slightly bigger. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can you can allow it to 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 show itself without worrying about them. Yeah, and there's uh, also two sets of um, prints of the work, and and James Hyman currently has both sets of prints, and he always wants to. I want him to exhibit the second set, and he always wants to exhibit the first set set because he likes he just likes that as the first set that was made, which is right. interesting. Yeah. But you've always used that, as you, we said already, in that juxtaposition between the, you know, the way that text can be, play, be, be used and played against the, the images. And uh, it was really a continuation of that habit uh, that you've sort of established with the yeah. Basingstoke work and, and the, the uh, office stuff. Um, I've got to ask you about fast forward women in photography. Because I think that'd be you know really interesting to a lot of the listeners and and especially to the women. Um, can you explain what it is and you know how how it began and what what the purpose of it is? I suppose would be the most important thing. Okay, um, just to start with, it's interesting to men and women. <laughs> no, absolutely, <laughs> because, but because it's a subject and uh, it, it it's a subject and it's an important subject now because. Somehow or other, and for lots of different reasons, uh, women photographers tend to become invisible before mm. their male um, peers do. Um, and um, I can't say that we yet can fully put our fingers on what it is that's hap that's happening. But this is the reason that Karen Noor uh, and I, because Karen now teaches with me at UCA, um, wanted to start fast forward it's through a conversation uh, talking about how many uh, women we have in our photography classrooms and at times uh, it's been 100% amazing so yeah my current year one mfa is 100% women wow um and we have a lot of women tutors on the mfa photographer photography which is great however we're still not seeing enough women succeeding as photographers in the world and you know there have been people have written a little bit about it Naomi um Rosenblum is, uh, is it Rose Naomi Rosenblum in her book A History of Women Photographers um sort of wonders at the beginning of the book why when it's such an easy profession to get into and you can see even now it's even easier than it was in a way I mean before you used to have to have a bit more money but now 
you know, it's relatively cheap, in fact, um, especially if you don't, you know, like if you're working for magazines, let's say. Um, why aren't there more women in it succeeding in photography? And when we started the project, we were, we were looking primarily at the art, art field and, and the commercial field is actually worse because there's there are more facts and figures that have come out about the commercial world um, through um, people like the AOP and I think the BJP. Um, but uh, we were looking at the art publishers and, you know, they averaged about 2% women that they were publishing, 2 to 5%. Uh, it's now it it really has gone up now. Uh, the, the minimum is twenty percent, and and some of them go up to fifty percent. And the same was in prizes and in group exhibitions. The group exhibition figures were shocking. So I think that show. I think it was nineteen. It was maybe eighty nine ninety. The Royal Academy show, the Art of Photography. Uh, over a hundred photographers and only a cup. Only four women, something like that. Wow. Uh, and then Cruel and Tender, which was the first big um, show at Tate Modern Photography. I think there were something like 24 photographers and maybe four women again. Mm. Uh, so it's it was pathetic, really. Mm. Um, so it's that conversion rate between um, people who are studying and then actually then going on to be kind of visible or actually working within the the industry that's that's what's yes. that's the problem well that's not the problem that's that's the that's what's happening but we we don't really know or we can't necessarily put our fingers on uh why that is i, I guess we could so, make some so, educated guesses but what we've been doing in fast forward is we've had funding to do a series of uh, research workshops across the globe and a series of conferences and uh we've edited two journals and it, through that process, we've gathered a lot of information and heard a lot of stories, um, which have become, which are really interesting. And um, again, through that process, which is a kind of a research process, um, we're learning more and more about why it is that um, that women aren't uh, being as successful. Um, what it actually really needs is some proper phd type research to be done to identify this and i'm interestingly i'm speaking in a conference an education conference just before Paris photo um in a few weeks time and it's all about equality uh gender equality and well sorry equality diversity and inclusion in photography education and there is actually a french woman who has who has done the research about women uh right back to the origins of photography education in france um I'm hoping I'm going to be able to understand her paper well enough to, oh. to to get to grips with it. But we need that research to be done, certainly in the UK and in and the U, the US at the very least. Um, and um, uh, the, so, the, the, so the things that it points that our experience points to is is number one, um, it, women are predominantly the carers in society, and and so this will be the case for all jobs really. But it becomes worse with freelance jobs because it's harder to get back in, strangely, to a freelance job than it is to a job which is maybe just on hold for you. Mm. Um, so you get stories of women who who uh, give up photography and become uh, then become a teacher because it fits in around their children better. I mean, I don't know. 
I don't know how old your children are with their school age yet. Uh, yeah, I just got one. He's he's about to turn 12. So he just oh, okay. started so he's, secondary. Yeah, okay. he's quite so, young. So, so, I mean, you know, I mean, what are parents supposed to do? They drop their kids off maybe at 8.30 if they're lucky and they've got to pick them back up again at three. Yeah, it's and kind during, of half day. <laughs> during COVID, I've seen them picking up at 2.30. Yeah. So what job can you do? What job can you do in that? I don't know. So that goes on till your kids, uh, you know, maybe when they're 12 to 14, they can start coming home and you don't have to be there so much. But or is it 14? But but so you've got so little chance if you've got any kind of um, caring duties, uh, you're, you're bound to, to lose it there. But and then on top of it, on top of that, there is something to do with networking. OK, networking is really important in an industry like photography promoting your work, um, getting it out to the right people and also getting employed, let's say, by the clients, by the art directors, by the editors and by the curators for the exhibitions. And um, men seem to have learned how to network in this business much better than women have. And my feeling is and this is just a feeling and I, I'd love to back it up with research, but I'm not the right kind of researcher to do that, is that, you know, as women, we are um, brought up to compete for the male gaze. Um, never mind what your sexuality is. That's how women have been brought up to, to, to operate in the society. I'm, I'm hoping it's less so now than it ever uh, was. And so when you... I don't think you find it easy as easy to like network and support each other in the way that guys do in the working world. Now I've seen women really support each other well in terms of things like childcare issues and what have you, uh, and uh, and anything to do with caring. In fact, mm. uh, but when it comes to the working world, which is uh, I think more alien for women still, um, there's less experience of that kind of networking. And less uh, understanding. Uh, this is, as I said, just what I feel and think. So, um, and also, it's this thing of having role models. Um, I mean, now there are definitely more. Um, but they need to be again they still need to be more supported i mean if you look at the who are the, the key role models um british women photography role models sort of my age and above you know i can i can think of five or six people mm. but i can only think of one of them that's had a what i call a very major british museum type or big gallery type you know one or two of them sorry one or two of them that had these kinds of shows that are, are and that you actually have to have like at least once every six or seven years to to make yourself that proper um, proper photographer out there in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's they ha they haven't all been shown or seen, mm. and um, some of them haven't had one at all. Yeah, there's much uh, room for improvement there and um but thank you for for telling me about it and um yeah it's really it's a fascinating area obviously so we are i mean it's yeah go on i'm looking up at time and thinking of your extra questions mm. because i do have to give a lecture yeah, i know you do <laughs> which I know is why you i moved it sooner no that's that's exactly why i was going to wrap it up so we could do that yeah. anna yeah. yeah um yeah thank you so much for talking with me um 
It's been a real pleasure to meet you and I uh, appreciate the time you've given me, Anna. Thanks. Uh, no, it was enjoyable. Thank you.